0: Welcome to another episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry.
1: And I'm your host, David. Tonight we're talking about Season 4, Episode 4, Hippocratic Oath. Before we continue, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast.
0: That's right. And as I say, every single week, you should find us and follow us because we are awesome. Um, Unfortunately, I know that our Twitter situation has just become ridiculous at this point. Um, But I'm still working on it. So hopefully, uh, again, I know I say it every time. It's been like three weeks now. But hopefully, yes, we'll get this sorted out. Um, Other than that, Yes, this is going to be episode four. No, we did not skip a week. Please remember that uh, the first episode of season four was a two-parter and we did it all the way through. We did not break it up because it was an awesome episode and because I didn't want to. So (laughs) we didn't do it that way. Um, Also, that is the episode that you would need to listen to if you want to enter into the contest to win a free Fire Caves mug contest. still open um, for just a little bit longer. Um, I think, actually, this week will probably be it. That'll give plenty of time for you to review on wherever you listen to podcasts and check out the YouTube and all the things and and go from there. So, uh, yeah. Just uh, go ahead, take a listen, enter, and uh, then we'll reach out to the winner and get you your mug. All right? Boom. Um, so now, yes, as David said, we are talking about the fourth episode, uh, Hippocratic Oath. But before we do, I'd like to check in. So, David, how was your week?
1: Well, that has been good. Uh, I finished watching the show based off this book I mentioned a couple weeks ago, The Peripheral. I didn't care for the book as much I did finish the show and I liked the show more though. I didn't like the way they ended season one. I mean, not that it was bad, but like it certainly causes you to be like, wait a minute, the logic that you've presented about how things work, this seems to break that logic. So you're gonna have to explain that if you continue the show. Um, I forgot to mention though, that Jonathan Nolan or Jonah Nolan and his wife, Lisa joy, who did the Westworld show uh, and did person of interest, which is my favorite, tv show of all time uh they are the uh producers on the peripheral and it is very much in the same westworld genre um so it's the show was was okay uh i would just say that the 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 source material is kind of flawed so you're having okay. to work with flawed source material but other than that uh it was rainy at- all week here in Austin really really it was gray for like almost three or four days now so
0: it really has like and I mean it's not even necessarily like a kind of an on-again off-again situation here it's been nearly continuous with rain you know Um, which I, I remember you know thinking I can't remember the last time that I've seen it like that for so many days typically there is kind of a you know a long low right like we may have a week of rain but it may rain for like part of one day and then we get like a two or three days off and then it'll rain again or whatever but no like seriously we did get rain for like 3 days straight yeah it yeah. it only eased up in intensity but it never truly stopped right so um yeah i found that very interesting as well and i mean i know we're just talking about the weather but considering how crazy the weather has been in our nation across the nation lately (laughs) i mean it just seems like every little bit of that um is uh fascinating a little terrifying i know that some people had you know tornadoes and stuff um going on um you know this past week so uh obviously we're not trying to be like sucks for you and all we have is rain or anything like that but i'm just saying very interesting to um be so intensely aware of basically yeah Mm -hmm. um how about you? What's new with you? Uh, my week has been actually um, pretty good. I, I ran into some some interesting issues with work. Um, not necessarily going to go into a whole lot there because there's obviously other people involved. Um, but I'm thinking I'm going to be able to make some um, pretty interesting changes pretty soon. So um, there's this training thing that I want to do that's coming up that may end up taking me um, to Houston for about a day and a half. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. If we get enough people to do it, like it's one of those, you know, kind of like a training course, but it's contingent upon number of people who are interested and who sign up, which I have to admit, I kind of hate those because I have an interest, but if not enough people have an interest, then we don't get to do it, you right. know? So cool. it's just like, well, then what am I supposed to do? Cause now I don't get the training that I want, which should actually propel me into some other things that I really want to do as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't – but, you know, hey, they're footing the bill for it, so I guess I can't really, really complain a whole lot. Okay. All right. So, we'll see, but that's, like, in June, so we'll see if that actually um, happens. I got a lot of time there, and I'm trying to, like, coax people into, you know, signing up (laughs) being like, guys, it's just – you know, even if you don't want to do it, I mean, you get a a trip to Houston for a day and a half. Like, do it, you know, so – Um, So there's that. Um, I am focusing more and more with the um, workouts, trying to be, you know, as I've said over and over again, trying to be healthy, be more active, and um, the never-ending saga of recognizing my aging limitations. As much as I may up here say, this is easy, this is not a problem, I can do it, um, I run into issues where my joints scream at me, oh no you cannot um just just recently i was trying to do some uh lower body workouts in particular and my knees still hurt um so i'm trying to figure out ways around it and uh you know my doctor's keeping tabs we're doing all that stuff to try to make sure that i'm doing this in a very healthy way and not uh straining myself pushing too much you know and again i'm a i'm a larger individual Already, you know, and I knew I was going to have joint issues anyway, because when you're six, eight, and you played sports for the majority of your years, you put a lot of mileage on your joints. And uh, I knew right. going into, you know, my 30s that things are going to be difficult, but um, I guess maybe I never anticipated it being <laughs> this this difficult. So, yeah, play through the pain, has yeah, a whole new it meaning was this right time...
1: Yeah, it was about a week ago, I was just... Talking about, to my mom, telling my mom that my, one of my knees, I definitely don't like bending down on that Mm -hmm. knee. It just, Mm -hmm. it just does not like it. I never had it looked at, I don't know if there's any issues there or what, but... I mean, I need to have it looked at just to find out if there's anything to know.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's
1: just general
0: wear and tear and then age, you know? And I mean, there, and what I have discovered in this whole quest to be healthy, there's actually a lot of things that people can do for their joint health that you can still improve your joint health even as you age. There's, it's really um, a matter of, like they say, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? But, you can get a lot of that back. You can get a lot of range of motion back. It comes through, you know, conditioning and, um, you know, stretching is more and more important like every day, you know, but, um, a lot of it uh, too is it's work. You have to put in the work to do it. And it's not about just, you know, weightlifting, but again, doing some of this, the conditioning stuff, the calisthenics stuff, things like that. And that's what I've started as well, just to kind of help with the, um, the pain in my joints and things like that but uh right. yes yeah, so, i mean if you're interested david i can uh, i can point <laughs> you in the direction of some things there's some actually there's some pretty cool stuff you can find on youtube right now yeah that um will will really help you out and you'd be amazed at like some of the people that are doing this stuff like i was watching one and there's a guy doing it who's like 44 45 years old and he's got this deep knee bend and can still jump up and uh touch you know backboards on uh basketball rims and stuff like that he can do like all these things and it all just comes from the strength and conditioning that he's done just for his joints like he doesn't work out he doesn't do um you know like heavy lifting or anything like that he just really focuses on his joint health and he's just all of this amazing agility amazing flexibility and again even older than i am so i'm just like all right Like, it's (laughs) it's possible. So, and he's not the only one. There are a lot of older people who can really do some amazing things behind this. So, um, yeah, if you're interested, I can help you.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, let me know. All right.
0: But we're not here to talk about all that stuff. We are here to talk about (laughs) uh, Deep Space Nine, of course. And um, we are talking about Hippocratic Oath. Um, Interesting episode, to say the least. Uh, Did you want to do the recap or did you want to? To do I
1: can though. I think I did the last one. So if you want to turn, how right. do you?
0: I, yeah, I'll do it. Go for and, it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, short, short and sweet. Again, shows over thirty years old. So if you want all the juicy details, besides what we're going to talk about later on, go watch the episode. Come back and join us and tell you what. Tell us what you think. Right. So this episode, again, called Hippocratic Oath, um, does have an A and a B plot. So I'm going to just kind of break them up and explain. All right. So our A plot here is the story of Miles O'Brien and Julian Bashir. They are returning from a settlement where they where Bashir was doing a kind of like a like a medical examination, making sure the settlement was up to stuff to like support the people that were living there. They turn, it turns out that they got that finished pretty early. And so they're heading back home a couple of days early. Um, they end up picking up a weird energy signal signature around a out of the way planet. They go in for a closer look, thinking that it's possibly a downed craft. Maybe somebody crash landed on the planet. Not sure. They end up running into some atmospheric or I guess, space turbulence which pushes them into the atmosphere and they crash land they right. get out of the shuttle they um are kind of looking around trying to figure out what's going on when all of a sudden they're set upon by a group of Jem'Hadar. now it's mm-hmm. important to note this is the first time that we've seen the Jem'Hadar hadar in season four now we've right. you know they've we, i think we've seen a couple of ships but no actual jem yet no, that's wrong. We haven't seen... Them. This is the first time we've seen the jemadar in season four. Yeah. So anyway, they appear. They take them hostage. They... Um, it looks like they're going to kill him at first, but then the leader says, no, bring them into the base camp. And he basically puts Bashir to work. It, he reveals that he is no longer addicted to uh, the drug called Ketracell White, which we heard about in some previous episodes, in particular in season three, but we never really had an official name for. If you can remember, there was the um the the baby that was found in the little um I guess incubator container. And they right. realized that it had some kind of enzyme deficiency and the doctor was able to synthesize a an approximate uh, enzyme, But then as right. the baby grew, they realized it was a baby gemhidar that grew up to be a very violent gemhidar. Right. And so this is the first time now that we're hearing a name for that enzyme that they're addicted to. And it's called Ketrocel white. And um, it comes in these little vials that they slip into these little patches on their chest. And then that's the tube that we see that runs into the neck and feeds them the enzyme and keeps them from um, metabolic decay. Um, the leader of the Jem'Hadar, whose name is Goranagar, takes Dr. Bashir and shows him all the other Jem'Hadar who are suffering from ketocell white withdrawal. And it's basically like drug addiction. Like, if you've ever seen any TV show or movie or whatever where it shows people who are addicted to things like heroin was the closest that i could think of anyway um Mm -hmm. the withdrawal symptoms it looks like that they were all shivering and shaking and could barely stand and intense pain and so forth and granagar reveals that he is not addicted to this and that something about this planet because he was on this planet several years ago something on this planet has made him um not need cured him yeah, yeah, he doesn't need it. He's cured. And he wants Bashir to figure out a way to make to, to do the same for everybody else. Because despite his best efforts, everyone else is still addicted. He tells them that they're also on a timeline. Uh, he's told everybody that they have 27 days worth of a Ketrasil White storage to last them. But in reality, it's only five days. So the doctor has five days to cure everybody before they go crazy and kill everyone. So, yeah, talk about, you know, working against an impressive clock there. So when O'Brien and Bashir talk and O'Brien realizes what they want um, Bashir to do, he's dead set against it. He's like, anything that helps them... Hurts us. You need to not help them. Don't do what they ask. But the more that Bashir starts to kind of get into the problem and doing his own, you know, talking with Garanagar and investigating the situation, the more he really becomes invested in doing this. He realizes that Garanagar is not like your typical um,
1: Jem Hadar.
0: He is he's kind of going through his own kind of like awakening his own you know evolution or renaissance even he's questioning the founders he's questioning his place in the society that he's been obviously born and bred to be into he doesn't want to be a slave and a servant to mythical god beings that the founders have built themselves up to be in his society and he wants to find a way to help his people to move away from that and he knows that The addiction is kind of that chief thing that keeps them um, having to stay with the Vorda and the founders and so forth. And so Bashir is very impressed by this and starts to want to help him. But again, O'Brien's like, no way. These guys are killers. They're, They're just the worst. We need to get the hell out of here just as quickly as we can. Um, the more that they kind of go back and forth on this, the more that, you know, we see that O'Brien and Bashir are very much in separate camps and they pretty much stay this way until the end. Um, O'Brien keeps trying to figure out ways to escape while looking like he's going along and helping out. Meanwhile, Bashir is legitimately trying to help. O'Brien is eventually, he, he tries to escape one time. And uh, almost gets killed for his trouble. But, of course, that doesn't stop him. He ends up getting to the runabout where he's able to use the transporter to beam himself to another location. He sends them off running, looking for him, which allows him to double back, get a weapon, find Bashir. And they have a brief argument there where he's like, we have got to go. You are not going to help this guy. This is that's it. I don't care. You can right. bring me up on charges, but we've got to get out of here. He destroys the machine that Bashir is working on. This forces Bashir to have to leave. Granagar confronts them right before the end, but he eventually, he just realizes that it's not going to happen, that there's just... Right. He kind of just accepts the situation and decides to stay on the planet and basically kill his men. He would rather them go out honorably in battle than to let them suffer yourself White withdrawal and die so they right. leave him behind and Bashir and O'Brien depart on their shuttle which you know what they don't explain how they fixed the shuttle by the way the shuttle crashed and had several different issues they never made any mention of how that was fixed I mean when did they do it because they were under lock and key this whole time so when was the shuttle fixed they even removed certain components from the shuttle so it kind of stuck out in my mind like how did they get away but I digress <coughs> But we'll get to that. So they're leaving and they basically are recognizing that this has been a strain on their friendship and that they're probably going to need a cooling off period for a little bit before they kind of resume things. So that's A plot. B plot is Worf on the station. Yes. Now, again, as we know, Worf joined in the first episode of season four, and now we see him as the strategic operations officer of Deep Space Nine. However, he seems to be having some issues with letting go of his previous role as security chief on the Enterprise D and moving into this role as strategic operations officer. Right. He is keeping tabs on criminals. In fact, there's one that he is watching, actively watching, in Quark's Bar. He's aware that the Ferengi bartender, as he calls him, he never uses Quark's name, he just keeps calling him the Ferengi bartender, or the Ferengi. He's aware that he's a part of the criminal element on the station, he doesn't understand why Odo doesn't arrest him, and it becomes frustrating to him that these known criminal elements are walking around the station free and clear. He starts to challenge Odo to kind of, you know, do your job, step up, arrest these guys, get them out of here, and Odo's like, I don't take orders from you, and I do my job pretty well, so get off my back, which right. I love because, again, you know, it's two favorite characters for me are at, <laughs> at odds here. And so, you know, again, this kind of ruffles Oda or not Odo, but Worf the wrong way. He's trying to figure out, you know, what he can do about it. He really does continue to kind of press Odo, and Odo just, he goes from just that kind of friendly grumble that we're used to, to he's really just kind of trying to put Worf in his place. Like, I'm not afraid of you. This is my job. Get out of here. You have your duty. I have mine. Stop trying to tell me how to do my job and so forth. Right. So, of course, Worf, being Worf, doesn't give it up. He stakes out Quark's. He uh, finds out when they're having the clandestine meeting. Um, and then when the meeting actually goes down for some crystals, he springs into action to arrest uh, Quark and the dealer of these crystals caught in the act. Right. But it's revealed that Odo has been aware of this the entire time. And in fact, he was kind of using Morph to push things along a little bit to get to this Clandestine meeting, and his whole goal was to infiltrate the ring, the the Ring of Crystal smugglers, and take down the whole operation. Not just arrest petty middlemen, but Worf right. has now kind of spoiled the plot here, and so right. he's like, well, I guess I'll just you know deal with what I've got." And they move on. This right. leaves you know Worf embarrassed, and it also leaves Quark still free and clear because it turns out he was assisting Odo the whole time. <laughs> so this leads to uh Worf and Cisco kinda of having a little bit of a heart to heart there. Um Cisco trying to mentor uh Worf into realizing that You know, life on a station is different than life on a starship. And, you know, you were in security on a starship for a very long time. Um, There's probably some habits that you need to break, some new things you need to learn here. And just adapt to the fact that you are not in security anymore. You are a part of the command staff now. Your job is different. Your duties are different. Your expectations are different. And you have to learn also to trust the people below you, the trusted people who are right. in those positions to do their job. And he reminds Worf that Odo is actually quite good at his yeah. job, as we right. know. Right. So, a bit of a learning experience, a bit of a growth experience here for Worf as well. And um, it ends kind of with a gentle acknowledgement that um, um, Worf is out of his element and he needs to adjust. And that's it. That's the show. Yeah. Yep. So a bit of a slow burn in cases, but essentially that's it. And again, if you want to watch and get all of the other details of it, go do so. You can watch it on Paramount plus. I think it's on sling. Now peacock TV. There's so many other things. There's apps that I don't even know about anymore that have this. I heard there's one that runs nothing but next generation. Like there's a whole app. That's just 24 seven next generation. Hmm. I, and I honestly don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. As much as I love Next Gen, I feel like you would need to have a breakup of, of something <laughs> in there somewhere. Wow. Well, yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, that is the episode. So um, what did you think? First impressions. First impressions uh, watching this.
1: Uh, the the thing that I took away after watching this episode uh, is I'm happy that it didn't have the happy resolution for Bashir and O'Brien. Uh, their relationship is affected by this episode, and it could have ramifications going forward. Uh, the Bashir O'Brien relationship is the one that's received the most growth over the entire series this fa- so far. Uh, everyone else, they've had we've had growth, but the O'Brien Bashir relationship started with animosity, at least from O'Brien's perspective. You know. Um,
0: You know, you're absolutely right, especially considering they're both Starfleet officers, because if you think about it, every other person who was a Starfleet officer had a previous knowledge of everyone else, except for Bashir and O'Brien. They were two, and I'm talking about in order to form a bond, a relationship, they were the two completely unknowns, you know? Right. So yeah, you're right, but go ahead.
1: And, And early on in season one, I forget the details of why it was, I think it's the episode where... Uh, O'Brien and Bashir go down, and there's the the space smoke monster thing that the they help with. Yeah, on um,
0: Bajor 4, I believe. And,
1: and during that one, Bashir is giving O'Brien a hard time because yes. O'Brien is the one that they think is the new person. The and a Bashir is, yeah, and O'Brien is like, I hate this, this is ridiculous. And, and the whole time, Bashir's like, call me Bashir. I know I'm a commanding officer. I know I'm a lieutenant, but just call me Bashir. We're buds. And O'Brien ain't having it. He's like, sir, 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 sir. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that episode, and I think it's that episode, it might be something else that happened. But anyway, in the, the, the what I'm thinking of is the episode where Bashir is trying to get O'Brien to like treat him more casually, and he's telling him, sir, sir, sir. And yet everything since then has been – moving them to get to know each other better. They're friends now. Not only did they um, play, like, uh, you know, racquetball, but they they have regular dart night now. Like, they are friends. There was that one right. time they got drunk, and, yes. you know, O'Brien was like, I don't hate you. <laughs> yes. I don't,
0: I, I, I don't not, not like you anymore. Yes. <laughs> he, he couldn't bring himself to say, I think if you as a friend, it had to be, yeah. I don't not hate you. Yes, that's exactly right. I I don't think that you are as annoying as I used to anymore. Yes,
1: exactly. And so the relationship between O'Brien and Bashir has been the most fraught, the most difficult, the most tense. It's also been the one that received the most growth. And in this episode, they really come to clash. Bashir tries to pull rank on O'Brien, and O'Brien doesn't take it. He says, I don't trust your judgment in this instance. You are wrong. I'm gonna make the decisions here. Not only am I gonna make the decisions, but I'm gonna destroy your work. Like he blows yeah, up I'm the going machine. To, yeah,
0: I'm not just. I'm not just disagreeing with your decisions. I am and I am sabotaging your work. I am stopping you from right. being able to do this thing.
1: So. Right. And of course, um, at the very end of this whole sequence, as the two of them are flying back to the station, O'Brien and Bashir are like, "Maybe we need some time, you know, apart to kind of cool down," as you said. Um, and, and and O'Brien is saying. Look, I I want you to understand that what I did is like you can you can be mad you can throw me you can put me up for uh, you know um, punishment. I want you to know what I did is because I was trying to save your life. Right. I want you to understand that, and that contrasts with the beginning of the episode where O'Brien was complaining to Bashir about Keiko. You know, Keiko had come home and she was complaining about the way he had reorganized their bedroom. So he had a workspace, and she's saying you're trying to like push me out of your life. And he's One of saying, the greatest
0: little breakdowns ever, by the way. I loved the pro bedroom workspace psychology
1: that Bashir, that gives. Bashir yes. gives.
0: It was <laughs> it was fantastic. I was like, yes, that is I, are, I, I, seriously. I thought about it, listening to him. I was like, you know what? Like, I wonder if that would work sense. now. Right, like, right, it does. Right. I yeah. was like, I wonder if that would work now. Like, I know that there are guys who their wives complain about how they bring stuff into the bedroom and you know have certain things you know and whatever else and i i just i wonder if that would work you know because it was such a it right. was an elegant expl explanation in my opinion um but yeah that was that was great
1: right yeah he uh t- to be clear to everyone what he says is is that no, the reason you have your workspace in your bedroom is because you miss the intimacy of your wife. You, right. This is your intimate space, and so you're trying to spend as much time as you can there.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, That's what he says. He's he's like, uh, yeah, you... Um, what did he say? Like You, you associate the bedroom with Keiko. Yes. So Because you have a workspace in this place you associate with her, you're right. indicating your desire to be closer to her. Yes. And I was like, man, man, that was... That was elegant. That was nice. Yes.
1: You can see how Bashir was a ladies' man in his time. Oh, yeah. No wonder. Um. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, again, the whole point of the start of the episode is o- O'Brien says, like he's trying to say, I wish she was more like, and then he can't figure out what to say, and he says, more like a man, and then uh, uh, Bashir has the funny, like, look at him funny, like, really? I don't think that's what you meant, right? And right. O'Brien waves him off. But the, at the end of this episode, they are now the Keiko O'Brien. At the end of the episode, Bashir had a strong difference of opinion. O'Brien had a strong difference of opinion, and they're having trouble working it out. You know, they're 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 not just you know all kumbaya hugging it out at the end. They are having to take some time to like think it out and maybe separate for a bit. Um, yeah. Which is sad, and it's certainly from the Keiko perspective. Like I... Keiko hasn't been around lately, we don't want them to go away. But it sounds like it was a really harsh, you know, conflict about you know bedroom space. You know, there's a lot more underneath that you would think. Yeah. Um, and then here's Bashir and O'Brien now, and it's like, man, O'Brien's getting isolated. It's like, I don't know. We're like, ah, I'm feeling for O'Brien here. So yeah but you know and that that's
0: what I was going to ask you like who did you at the end of the episode who do you agree with do you agree with Bashir or do you agree with O'Brien because I think that that is the the a great scenario here for for Star Trek to do. Yeah. You know um a lot of times in Star Trek we see where the it's kind of especially when it comes to anything medical that the doctor is perceived as always being right because they're coming from this place of we are trying to help we are trying to heal we're trying to right. end suffering and that is supposed to be the the altruism right that's what that's kind of what starfleet is all about we are to, we they arrive to ease the suffering to make things better to elevate right right and so here we have this situation where this kind of thing is playing out but now it's playing out with a current enemy and um when you think about this moment also in uh in, in review of the next generation and that kind of service in you know service regardless of who you're serving, right? Like, Picard was always giving some very elegant speeches about it doesn't matter if they're an enemy or not. These are people who are suffering. These are people who are in pain. We should help them. And so right. now we see this here in Deep Space Nine, and we see two people who are on very opposite sides. And so before we get into anything else, I want to ask you, who do you agree with, Bashir or O'Brien?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I, before I guess I say anything else, I just want to say this is why I like the episode, because you can see both sides of the argument. Mm-hmm. Bashir was he thinks he was making progress. But we as the audience and certainly O'Brien has no way to really know if he was. Mm-hmm. You know, Bashir might have been thinking too optimistically. I'm only, you know, 24 hours away from a solution. Really? Do we know that? How do we prove that? How do you how do you in 24 hours and then what? Um the only person that was actually interested in them being successful was the um Jim Hadar, the name of who Garanagar. Garanagar, he was the only one who both asked for their help and was continuing to help and was giving them second chances. Like, yeah, O'Brien was doing was was being rebellious. Like the Jim Hadar yeah, and the other guys wanted to kill him.
0: Now it's important to know he did not ask for their help. He took them hostage and forced them. He was like, I will Basically, if you don't help us, then you're of no use to us, and we will just kill you. That Fair was enough. that was to help, and and, and that's but, also a point that O'Brien makes. He tells right, him, "That's exactly you know, right. That, yes. uh, you know, yeah, that this is all manipulation. You're we are of use to them, and that's why, right. also why he's saying I don't want you to help them because right. it, it weakens them, and that helps us. And I'm right. trying to save our lives." And, and was, O'Brien
1: says that once we help them, they're still going to kill us. Right? There's killed. no
0: we have no guarantee they're just going to let us go and send right. us on our way that as far right. as we know, we're going to, we're going to be helping our enemy. We're going to enhance the gem head R and send right. them out murdering across the alpha quadrant. He's like, that's a right. risk I can't take. And so right. that's where he's looking at this from, from that pragma- pragmatic, pragmatic, yes. militaristic um, mindset. I, I have this experience. Uh, everything that I, my training tells me is that this is wrong and we need to not do this. Whereas Bashir, as a doctor, again, trained to help, uh, you know, basis of the episode, the Hippocratic Oath, sworn to help and render aid, you know. Um, Right. He's torn. He's not even really torn. He's fully committed. He was was torn, I guess, or I'd say hesitant more because he obviously didn't want to die. But once he became aware of the situation... It seemed like all concern about his and O'Brien's life really kind of dropped away. Once he really got into investigating, is this possible, he stopped caring about what else was going on on around him. Right. You know? Right.
1: Yeah. Um, The way I would put it is that this type of episode, the whole Bashir is trying to solve the medical issue. 99% Ninety-nine percent of the time, in the episode, he's figured it out. Whether it's him or it's Doctor Crusher or anything, it's you know we'll figure out the solution by the end of the episode. He doesn't. It's not that he got close and was un- unable to complete it, or or I don't know. There's it's there's the tragic ending isn't that he couldn't find an answer. It's that O'Brien. In his well reasoned, or at least reasonable, uh, explanation for what's going on, said, "We don't have time for you to be generous. We don't mm-hmm. have." I mean, the episode's called Hippocratic Oath. You know, do no harm. So let's. Um,
0: I, I'm glad you said that because I want to actually talk about the Hippocratic Oath. So, right. um, you know, she's
1: not mentioned by name. I don't think in the episode. I think it's. You're correct. It was yes. not
0: mentioned by name. Uh, they don't ever say it, uh, but obviously this is in reference to the doctor's desire to immediately render um, aid. And you said it, you know, uh, do no harm. While those, um, you know, so we are, we like to add a little history component to our episodes whenever possible. Typically we feature this in the '90s, um, but we're gonna go. All the way back to Hippocrates and ancient Greece here, Ooh, and wow. um, yeah, 90s we're going to
1: corner in the like zero, yeah. zero nine, 90s. yeah,
0: nineties. The, <laughs> the yeah, I was going to say the literal nineties, just nineties. <laughs> we're we're going to go back quite a way, quite okay. a ways. Um, so you know, that's probably it's probably one of the most, um, I guess, well-known oaths that that exists in human culture, human civilization, um, you know, Um, and that's probably one of the first things that people think of when they, when someone says, tell me something of the Hippocratic Oath, is that line, first, do no harm. Mm -hmm. Um, now in doing my own little research for this particular episode, I found out that, um, it does not actually explicitly contain that phrase, Mm -hmm. first, do no harm. It does say, do no harm in it, but not like that. It's not the first line of the Hippocratic Oath. None of that is there. It's actually kind of deeper down into it. Um, so, some things you should know about the Hippocratic Oath uh, is that, one, the oath wasn't so much um, saying, I am going to um, always just render aid or anything like that. The first and most important part of the oath was always seen as the part where the person who's taking it is swearing um, allegiance to their teacher. So, when they were taking the oath, this was they were basically saying, I swear that... I will always assist my teacher. I will use the knowledge they have taught me to help them and to help others. And that I will also train uh, not only uh, my family, but their family. And, you know, if their kids come to me and want to be doctors or whatever it is, I will train them. And I won't charge them for it either. That's actually in there. Ah.
1: Interesting. So
0: it was a way of wow. keeping Me this broken knowledge.
1: we that one a long time ago. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, that was the first thing I thought too was like, wait a second. You mean medicine's <laughs> supposed to be free? So uh, <laughs> medical training is free? Um, but yeah, that was the first part was if you, and it, it was all designed to keep this knowledge very specialized and mm. to stop people from um, basically being, you know, uh, charlatans Hacks. and hucksters, yeah. right. You know, and it, and it also, the oath bound you to a certain type of medical practice. If you were trained in medicinal herbs or um, you know things along that nature, then that's all you did. If you were trained right. to use a knife and to do any kind of like rudimentary surgeries or whatever, then that was all you did. If ever there was a time that you're, you were called upon to render aid and it turned out that what they were asking you to do was something you were not trained to do, the oath forbade you from being able to do it. You had to go and find someone else who could do that. You weren't allowed right. to just say, oh, I'm a doctor. I can do it. No, that, right. that was it. Right. Um, the oath also stopped you from being able to take advantage of people. It stopped you from being able to um, use what you learn about them against them. You know, that whole doctor-patient confidentiality, privacy, and so forth. It's There's a whole line in there about how if you learn something during the course of your treatment of somebody, whether directly or indirectly, because a lot of times these doctors were going to people's houses, they were in their intimate settings, and they might overhear something from the family or whatever. They were not allowed to use it against them. And the last part of the oath specifies that if at any time you break any of the tenets of the oath, there were some very... <laughs> very uh severe punishments oh, for man. it that would last you for the rest of your days so that was <laughs> that was the oath so it said if you lived by the tenants of the oath then you were entitled to all of the notoriety the publicity the acclaim that came with it for the rest of your days even if you retire you had all of the accolades but if you betrayed the oath, and it was proven that you betrayed the oath, there were some severe punishments that you also got for the rest of your day. So it was not an easy thing um, to just swear by. I guess you had to really, right. you know, consider this. So wow. yeah, a lot of no great idea. stuff there. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't either. To be honest, I didn't either. And then I looked it up and I saw all the things about it, and um, I was very impressed. But I will also say that you know the oath itself has changed a lot over the you know millennia that mm-hmm. uh, that have been out there um and and actually they don't necessarily require you to swear an oath yeah. uh, to be a doctor anymore in fact the united states struck that down in uh, 1973 so now there are some places that some medical schools that still as kind of like an honorific of a ceremony will right. have an oath but you are no longer legally bound by the oath huh. so when you know when you hear that especially when you hear it in like tv shows and whatever else for example because <laughs> they love to throw that out there i took an oath
1: well yeah, yeah. your yeah. oath
0: means nothing your oath okay <laughs> don't give yeah. me that
1: yeah. yeah yeah to give free to give your uh, free uh to, 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 to teaching to your uh, to your teacher's kids that's right you're... <laughs> right
0: you know that's what that's what yeah. it really is yeah it's uh um Are you going to do that? Then you took an oath. Does that mean that if so-and-so's kid comes up to you, are you going to teach them everything that you know for free? Bet you you don't. Um, But yeah, so we've... So that was kind of the whole thing here of of the oath itself. And uh, the main part that everybody seems to really fixate on is the part about um, doing no harm. And that line in the Hippocratic Oath reads, I will use those dietary regimens which will benefit my patients according to my greatest ability and judgment, and I will do no harm or injustice to them. That's it. It doesn't say anything else about always needing to render aid or whatever else it is. Um, It does... The oath does make mentions of, um, uh, medical assisted suicide and abortion, which the oath is against both of those, by the way. And, um, again, like I said, you're not, it makes you swear to not do things you're not trained to do again, not use a knife if you're not trained to use a knife so forth and so on. But yeah, um... I would suggest everybody take a moment at some point and go and read it because it is something that comes up a lot not just in, you know, uh, like television and movies and stuff like that but a lot of our prevailing literature over centuries makes reference to it at some point or another. It's a very common thing to hear um and it does s- s- seem to form the basis of a lot of great um ethics debates. In arguments right. so you should just you know check it out at some point and just kind of have that knowledge in the back of your yeah. head for anything else that you're doing
1: but yeah Yeah, I've never i've never really given it much more thought than just that general yeah i took an oath or first mm-hmm. to no harm i even whenever i hear hippocratic oath i almost hear hypocrite oath like it it almost sounds like saying hypocrite that um, mm-hmm. just makes me laugh sometimes like ah someone should make a pun on that but um but yeah um which so I think it actually
0: comes, you know, there is there is a bit of that in there because you know the whole basis of hypocrisy is the practice of f- pretending to do something or be something that you you're not, uh, you know. Okay. So yeah. if you think about it again, you're that's why the oath is important. You can't pretend to be a doctor. You can't, right. and even within the doctor community, you can't pretend to have a skill or a expertise that you don't. Right. If that if in that in that line in that vein you would be seen as a hypocrite or practicing hypocrisy if you were to claim any of those things so it right. starts there and then obviously we have you know uh expounded that to mean a lot of other uh, have a lot of other connotations beyond just the medical field but yes right there's your gotcha. there's your link
1: <laughs> well that makes sense then mm. um but it's, it's interesting though because Again, Obra- uh Bashir never outright says, you know, I made an oath or says the Hippocratic oath necessarily. He just more gets caught up in the the his own personal fervor of yes. I'm going to do this thing, which is interesting uh in part because uh, what the Jim Hadar guy says again the name I don't remember very well.
0: Goranagar um,
1: Goranagar, he he starts talking about at one point um like you guys have a a changeling on your station and up says yes and he says i've never met the changelings the founders as he calls them Mm -hmm. you know there are other beings who believe in gods that you know direct their destiny and that are there for them in the afterlife uh for us there are none the the founders don't wait for us in the afterlife they just use us and that is one of many other things, one of several things that Bashir uh, starts saying to O'Brien, like, hey, look, this guy is like having like a moral crisis. He's mm-hmm. he's like working his his um, his like philosophy out. He's he's changing. He's he's not just the same guy. He's uh, which is interesting because the question then becomes is he is he having all of these, you know, moral questions in part because he doesn't have the the white the 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 drug does the drug somehow like for example is it causing them to become violent therefore they don't have the time or energy or patience to work out moral questions and therefore this guy now that he is for whatever reason free of the drug is able to mentally be in a place that he can start reasoning out these things or what because the other guys are like you're weak you know, his, his second in command at one point says you're weak you're you're turning into a human you're I used to respect you, um and the reason he stays as you said is because the others are gonna kill them kill Bashir and O'Brien unless he can defend them as they mm-hmm. try and escape, um I guess the argument for fixing this ship is that that's how they did it is that the guy was fighting off his men while they fixed the ship and then managed mm-hmm. to escape
0: maybe I mean <laughs> it doesn't ex- it doesn't. Ex- it yeah it doesn't explain it well and it also doesn't explain the atmospheric turbulence that brought them down in the first place. If it brought them down, why didn't it stop them from going back up? Like they well, were there were there they a lot shot of shot
1: down or was it turbulence?
0: Well, it was some kind of electrical emission Blasmid that they something. flew that they flew through. Right. So and it, I, I don't maybe I missed it, but I don't remember them saying that that was a weapon that the Jemadar were using. It right. was just something that happened as they got closer to the ship. So, um, it, it could very well be that I dismissed that and that's what it was, was that, you know, a way of keeping people from being able to, um, um, land safely.
1: Well, and, I mean, Jorian Angar says that he was on this planet once before because he crash landed before he was the only survivor and that over the course of time right. when he was crashed, he ran out of, the, excuse me, ran out of the drug. But was able to somehow – excuse me um, – move on beyond the drug – With basically, he was able to go through drug withdrawal and, and come out of it without dying. Right. And it's not clear why. We're never – I mean we're never given a reason why.
0: Right, and so it's, in what they fly into you know, the plasma field that disrupts the ship that causes them to crash, I mean it's kind of left as an assumption that that's what brought Garanagard down when he was on the planet four years ago in the first place, so again it doesn't solve the issue if they crash because of the plasma field, then the plasma field is still there, so even if they are able to repair the ship and get it to launch off the planet, there's no reason to think that they wouldn't run into the exact same problem when they try to clear orbit of the planet we don't know where it's located It surprised them the first time so it there's a lot there that doesn't that they don't answer we're just i guess left to assume that one they had time to fix the ship and two they figured out a way around or through the plasma field so whatever um but yeah you know and, and as you were saying about Garanagar talking to bashir and he's kind of having these Revelations about himself and about his people. You know, these are the things that really start to fascinate Bashir and make him want to help him more. And O'Brien points out that that could very well be a grander part of the manipulation because he says, you know, uh, Granagar pointed it out. You are a doctor. You are trained to have sympathy for and your... And compassion. Your, yeah. Yes. And so he could be playing on this to get you to do what he wants. You need to be right. aware of that. And Bashir dismissed him. And then he ordered him. He ordered right. O'Brien to help yes. and, and to yes. assist. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot here that, um, again, to me, as a person who's... Uh, not only seen these episodes many times, but also uh, Next Generation many times. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of what O'Brien, not O'Brien, I'm sorry, but a lot of what uh, Bashir Bashir is saying here really does kind of fit into the mindset of the next generation. A lot of times what we saw with Picard and company was, again, this desire to help, to just short of, Directly violating the prime directive, which you know, even though there are times they did that too, um, but prime just short of the prime
1: directive. Yeah, it's
0: <laughs> it's a guideline. It's not a rule. It's a guideline. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, that was kind of their mindset on a lot of things. Was the doctor is is despite the many times it may frustrate us, the doctor is always always right. How many times did Beverly put herself out there and ignore the safety? and the danger of a situation and uh, attempt to uh, render aid. And right. she was just always kind of lecturing on that point. I'm a doctor. This is what I'm here to do. And I'm going to do it to, to hell with the situation. Um, there's a good, a long standing tradition of that. Even in the uh, original series, Dr. McCoy did the same thing. So these doctors are following along in the same vein. And right. ultimately they were often proven, you know, Correct, because they were our heroes And we didn't want to see them taken down But here's the first time At least I feel Here's the first time that we We don't get that We don't get a resolution that says Either person is correct It's, you have to make that determination For yourself Who do you side with And I'll say it now I remember the first time I watched this episode And again, coming from next gen to this I was very much on the side of Dr. Bashir and I was yeah. like, O'Brien should absolutely be brought up on charges. He he, <laughs> he he disobeyed orders. I love O'Brien, but he's a non-com. He's got to take orders, yeah. and that you know, and, and and who knows what this could have led to with the Dominion? Yeah. You know, right. I, I thought about all of those things. Yeah. But um, now, well, the
1: real the real qu- oh sorry, I was just Go just ahead. real hey, yeah, just no. to
0: finish that out. Uh, just but now I find that um, I agree with O'Brien. There, there were too uh, many unknowns. There were too many yes. unknowns. There's too yeah. much going on there that we can't, you know, and, and while Garanagar may be having a revelation, all the rest of his people are not. So we yes. can't run the risk that it will, you know, f- that for every one Garanagar, we're going to have 50 <laughs> New Jem'Hadar super soldiers, right? Yes. So who,
1: who aren't addicted? That's, that that yeah. really is a problem, as as O'Brien says. Like, what if they just start marauding everywhere? Yeah. Like, at least they're on a leash, a short leash, right? It, like, so, it's a harsh argument that he makes to Bashir, but you're right; he yeah. has a point.
0: <laughs> and I was like, I don't want, and I, you know, you place yourself in the situation. You know, your family's out there, you know, living on the station or wherever it is. I mean, do you really want to turn this? Bloodthirsty killer race—a whole race of them trained to kill. Do you really want to turn them loose on the galaxy? Well, not
1: even trained to kill, but as we said, that boy—the boy that they found, the baby—he grew up in three days, and he was already hyper aggressive. He wanted right. to fight. He and actually he, left the station to go back to the Jim Hadar because he yeah. wanted to be with his people,
0: and he had innate fighting skills. He yes. grew up, and they—they they did not show him fighting stuff until he was essentially a teenager but he already had a very impressive skill set for a person who'd never even seen a weapon before let alone be in a fight so yeah do you suddenly want to turn them loose free of their addiction free of their reason to calm down at the very least no so yeah Yeah. i i definitely agreed more with o'brien in later years but you still haven't answered the question
1: Who'd Who do I agree, agree with? with the well, heroes? so this, the show is definitely giving us mostly Bash- Bashir's perspective. Like I would say, if, if there's like a protagonist this episode, the one we're mainly following, it's Bashir. So the show is sympathetic to Bashir's perspective most of the time. But that's also why I love this episode, because O'Brien is given powerful counterarguments, and that's why this episode... I like the fact that it doesn't end on a happy note. It doesn't end with a clear solution. It doesn't end with the right answer. Both of them are arguably correct. Now, yes, O'Brien is the one who is making the better safe than sorry argument. And frankly, in this case, is right in the sense of like, there's too many unknowns. You don't know how long it's going to take you. You only have the one guy who might be sympathetic because we're helping him, but even he was forcing us um even if we are successful you know they all could turn on us and the and the ramifications he even says it in that argument he says let's say you're right what if they maraud around and they're actually worse worse that's actually a worse solution so yeah uh bashir is right in the i'm sorry uh, o'brien is right in the there are too many unknowns um but the problem is and the, the is that star trek usually Again, makes us sympathize with the doctor, you know, Doctor Bashir. Mm-hmm. And usually, they pull out the the you know, the rabbit out of the hat. They they pull out the answer by the yes. end of the episode, and we're all happy, and we should have trusted the doctor all along. This episode didn't give us that, and I'm happy that it didn't. It took it took a turn. I I wasn't I I mean, as the episode was unfolding, I really did think that Bashir would figure something out, and we well, yeah. have having.
0: We, they they kind of make you feel like that's going to happen especially once he yeah. starts to get into the whole oh it's in your blood thing and oh I'm going to have a yes. solution in 24 hours and so forth yes. they really make you think he's going to come up with a, a solution that not only solves the Jem'Hadar issue of their their Ketrasil white addiction but also right. perhaps of the inroads to peace with this group are we going to yes. suddenly see us having a uh, a renegade group of Jem'Hadar who yes. now have teamed up with our federation heroes exactly and are gonna what i thought might happen right yes. and they're gonna train them or something like there could there could have been that could have been an avenue that they they went down but um right. yeah did not happen here and right. i i think ultimately i think this is um a better ending because right. um by not giving us a clear um who's right who's wrong it allows us to well have debates like this and you know you can also break the episode down a bit and you know kind of give yourself a more of a a real world scenario here like what would you do like would you go along with your captors and would you do what they're asking you to do even though this is still it still very much keeps you in danger keeps your people in danger you know um there's actually a parallel of this episode to the movie um, a Bridge Over the River Kwai, which is a great movie starring Alec Guinness from I think 1960 something or another. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Sir Alec Guinness, sorry, mm-hmm. um, excuse me. Um, but that's kind of the whole <laughs> that's kind of the whole premise of that movie too. These captured British soldiers um, being forced to build this bridge, and there are some elements there who don't want to cooperate, don't want the bridge building to be successful. Uh, meanwhile, Guinness's character kind of, you know, gets into the work. You know, he starts he starts to forget a bit of, that he is a captured um, combatant and really wants to do a professional stand-up job building this right. bridge and really commits to it and, um, you know, ultimately leads to his downfall. So, yeah, there's, there is that that we can kind of see as our own real world um um parallel and then of course you have to ask yourself like which uh where would you fall in this i mean yeah. you're tr- you're trained on one hand to render this service you have a specialized knowledge but at the same time you um i mean you obviously you're placing yourself in danger you're placing other people who you're responsible for in right. danger and right. um what you're doing um assists your enemy right so
1: yeah and, and and O'Brien definitely gets some backup I forget all that is, is said back and forth between him and the Jim hadar when he's in the ship and he mm-hmm. right before he transports himself you know he tr- he tricks the guy and, and transports himself away oh yeah the, uh, do you the, remember the Jim hadar this...
0: so the Jim hadar is, is watching him and he was like, you don't like us or he said you don't like helping us he was like no I don't and he goes yeah. I don't I don't like you helping us either
1: yeah you know I'm and that, I mean that's each other right
0: it's kind of like yeah. it's it's a recognition that um despite there being a calm here, we are not friends, nope. we are not comrades in arms we yeah, are enemies,
1: not, there's no truce here there's right no yeah no uh disarmament, yeah, yeah yeah all of that um, and again, one of the reasons I love this episode is because none of this is communicated to Cisco and the others as far as I I mean the episode doesn't end with Cisco finding out what happened they get back it's to true. the station on time because again at the end of the episode they said that they had they were two days early. early they
0: were two days early with the job and so and no one was even looking for them
1: yes Kira's like welcome back guys the she' does. open she doesn't just ask greets how him. to go mm-hmm. yeah and, and Bashir says I mean O'Brien says you could totally reprimand me like that is your in your authority um I just want you to know my perspective and basically I think Bashir I don't think he definitively says he won't do it but he yes he does no he does he, he says because he, he says say
0: yeah because yeah, O'Brien says yeah you could still bring me up on charges And he was like, yeah, that's not really my style. So that's kind of our our indicator that he's not going to do it. And again, you're right. Because of the fact that they were two days early, they arrived back on the station on time. So no one was looking for them and no one would question them because they weren't late. Typically, that's what happens when they show. If you show up late, they're going to ask, well, where were you? Why were you delayed? This would lead to them needing to make the extra report which would have meant that O'Brien would have had to disclose what happened with or not O'Brien but Bashir would have had to disclose what happened with O'Brien disobeying the order which could have led to charges but because they're on time because no one was looking for them because no one questions them he doesn't have to and I think it's interesting as well that they have that discussion about bringing up on charges after Kira acknowledges their presence and tells them where to go. Oh, right, that's right. Because it's because yeah. it's all smooth, and she says, "Welcome back, gentlemen. The docking bay two or whatever runabout pad C is open, right?" And yeah. they and they cut. Right. So again, because if if they had been late, she would have asked, "What happened?" Right. The, yeah. Cisco's waiting for your report. Like why? You know all that. Right. But yeah.
1: That Great whole, pickup. This, this whole episode reminds me of us of a short, rather short scene in uh, Band of Brothers. I think it's episode two, where one of the characters is being introduced, um, and he's going to be one of the kind of mid-level commanding officers, not like captain or anything, but just like in charge of some. But like on his first night with his guys, he started playing poker with his guys, and he's being reprimanded by Captain Winters, saying, "You can't get too close to your guys because then they won't respect you." And he's like, but I got to get to know them. And like, there's that back and forth that the whole, you know, what is the proper relationship between command and the non-combatants or the the non-commissioned officers. Mm -hmm. And um, this episode really brings home that that question because Bashir and O'Brien were friends. That's where that, that's where O'Brien could say to Bashir, I disagree with you. I know who you are. I know your fault, your flaws, and that you're getting your head too big um and you're making the wrong decision and i i am not going to obey you if they hadn't known each other then o'brien would have grumbled like if this had been season one o'brien would have grumbled and gone along with it and and been like okay commander you mm-hmm. know whatever uh, but this one he's like no i know you too well um but it's still a great question because it's like should Bashir and O'Brien on the station be two guys who just, you know, salute each other in the hallway? Like, that's impossible, as basically Cisco said at the end of this episode. Like, living on a station is not like living on a, a starship. Mm-hmm. You know, on a starship, as uh, as Worf says, I know who my enemies are, I know who my allies are. And there's a chain of command. And here on the station, that is pretty well thrown out the window, and yet... That doesn't necessarily mean that we aren't going to have to try and work out those issues, as as Bashir and O'Brien mm-hmm. found out. Um, but I think it's a good segue into the uh, wharf part of the episode. I was going to you know? say because uh, <laughs> considering
0: considering how um, much time we have spent on the other
1: but yeah,
0: let's we'll be quick uh, about it. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean this, this story is. is pretty much a very straightforward one. This is Worf's learning curve on being on the station. Um, We knew that there were going to be some difficulties with him transitioning from the Enterprise to um, Deep Space Nine, and I think this is a great way to handle it. He Mm -hmm. is... He's trying to find this place. He's trying to figure out how he can um he can work here, how he can serve here. And um it's I think that that's totally natural for him to fall back into what he knows, as he indicates. He's been in security for seven years. He was the chief of security of the Federation flagship. It makes sense that this is what he would do. But yeah, it's not going to be the same as being on a, a ship. Um, the level of security that you're going to have on a station is going to be vastly different than what you would have on a right. on a ship. And this is what he is having to contend with. And also recognizing, right. um, not your job anymore. F- <laughs> figure out, I mean, that's the main thing. It's not your job. You're going to have right. to figure out another way to spend your time. Which, that was also my, my question for Worf. What are you doing in your downtime? Like why is this something that you have the ability to do? Like do you not have enough to do? You are the strategic operations officer for the sector. The right. the whole sector, not just Deep Space 9, the right. whole freaking Bajoran sector. Right. You don't, and you don't have enough to do? Yeah. You you're doing your job wrong, bro. Like well, funny, I love you, Orf, but come on.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Cisco says when they first confront him over his kind of interference with Odo is like just can't interfere with your job. And he's like, "It won't. I won't let it. Um, and I fully believe that Worf is not dropping the ball. I think, no, but that just means
0: he's not sleeping.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That's for sure. That's true. He is so kind of paranoid on this issue that you're right. He, because he stayed in Worf's quarters, I'm sorry, in Cork's quarters, Cork's bar, you know, watching from the shadows for, we know a while. Mm -hmm. We saw that Cork was waiting around and time passes. Um, the, uh, and yeah, so, you know, WARF security officer, being security officer means, you know, any sort of disciplinary action, any sort of, you know, in, infraction, any sort of incursion needs to be immediately addressed. But on a station, you don't have that immediacy. And so Odo is actually right. Yes, I am not just trying to take care of small little problems. I have a stratagem. You know, I'm playing chess here, not checkers. Right. Um, so. Yeah, I, the, the one thing I would say, though, is I do feel like, I mean, I understand Odo. You know, Odo is the one who's like, I ain't answering to nobody. I don't have to tell you what I'm doing. Uh, it would have been, I think, a little smart for him to say something to Worf, something like, I'm aware of the situation. I do have things in hand. Uh, there's a reason why I might seem like I'm not uh, as in, into this as you might think. But trust me, I have this. But I certainly wish Cisco had been a little more direct with Worf, just for Worf's sake and said, I trust Odo, he is good at his job, I fully have uh, confidence that he has this in hand. I mean, I think he does kind of say that, but I he, feel like he does He doesn't, does. He doesn't quite enough. Right. He,
0: he doesn't necessarily, you know, hammer it or anything like that, but he does make it very clear that, you know, um, Odo's good at his job and he's been doing the job for a while and he's doing it because we know he can get it done. He, he doesn't... He doesn't necessarily lay it out for Worf like that, but he's basically, right. he does intimate, hey, this is, that's his job. So let right. him let him do it. Right. Um, and I understand what you're saying too. Odo, if, like if Odo had just kind of like clued Worf in a little bit, you know, that also would have, Solved some of their problems, but that's also not the type of person that Odo is. We know from watching Odo. I'm like, Odo ain't that
1: type. (laughs) Yes,
0: we know from watching Odo. I mean, he very much keeps things close to the chest, uh, close to the vest, and he also um, demands respect for his job. You know that if if he's on the case, Odo's getting it done. He doesn't like having to um, prove himself. Right. Um, which is funny because he proves himself over and over again. Like he just, he just does it. It's like, if you just stand back and let the man work, he's going to impress you. And he does. Heck, he was impressive here. Cause we, cause we're watching this whole situation and we're really seeing it mainly from Worf's perspective. We don't see the investigative talents of, of Odo here that we know. We've seen Odo work plenty of times, but we're not getting to see that here. And so when he shows up as the bag of money, it was great. I mean, yeah. and even, and, and, and Worf, you know, the shock on his face when Odo.
1: picks up Odo. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and Odo appears. And is shocked that Odo was obviously and, intimately involved with everything. Yeah. It was I just like, Odo... oh.
1: I love how Odo comes up to and he's looking at Worf. He's not looking at Quark. Right, looking at he's the other guy. He's, looking he's completely at Worf. right.
0: He's like, yeah, he's completely like, all of, even even in that moment, he's like, this is everything behind me is in control. You're the problem. <laughs> yeah. You're the problem. So <laughs> exactly. yeah, I I love that as well. That he was just like putting Worf on notice. Hey, you know, yeah. like this was this was coordinated. This was you know, and he even says, I used you. I used your pressure and your investigating and your so to drive this uh, meat a bit. Right. So I mean, he just he didn't anticipate Worf kind of jumping the gun, right. you know. Um, but yeah, he uh, again he was aware of everything. Um, I love this story because it is a great one uh, for growth for Worf. I've always felt like Worf was a character who we. Uh, he kind of came off one-dimensional on Next Generation. And it wasn't really until the latter seasons, the sixth and seventh seasons, that we really started to see some um, development of Worf's character, um, you know, into being something more than just that big burly guy who stood behind Picard and got told no all the time. All the time. Like, all the time. Or he was the the big bad that the enemy of the week picked on and threw across <laughs> the room or – Broken yeah. half or yeah. whatever it was. Worf was constantly getting beat up on Next Generation. I was just like, I mean, you're a yeah. great warrior and all, but man, I mean, there's even the episode where Deanna gets taken over by gonna, a ghost. I
1: was going to say, we've talked and, about it before, but that's the classic right. moment, yeah. And
0: she grabs his wrist with that little, yeah, and then throws him across there. And I was like, come Pull on.
1: Really? You have like Ghost possession to right. make that happen. Yeah, that's
0: right. So so Ghost Deanna can fling him and then of course there's the first season episode where uh the old admiral who's got the worm implanted in his neck oh, or whatever yeah. uh-huh. and he Tosses Worf through the, uh, or tosses Wharf across the room, throws Jordy through the table, through the doors. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: jump kicks Riker and all this, like all, all of these things. I was like, come that was, on,
1: uh, that episode, man, that one was a real jump out of left field with that episode. Yeah.
0: That a, I'd love to talk about that Star one at some Trek point too because
1: horror. Episode, the, yeah, yeah, the
0: conspiracy theory of these alien invaders, and then we never, we never see him again.
1: That's it
0: they have they have infiltrated to the heart of starfleet and then we blow up remick because we didn't like remick and then we never hear from them again that was that was it that was the episode so um but yeah like worf is forever being told no you're wrong uh it can't work or getting you know slapped from one end of the bridge to the next and that was it and now here we're seeing him being forced really to become something different. So I definitely enjoyed that. And, um, I, like, like, there's, there's always been something about the character of Worf that, um, it just, it brings, I, I can't even really describe it, but there's, he brings something to the shows that he's on, especially when they really start to expand his range, that it just makes it more enjoyable. I don't know if it's because he's playing an alien and we're having to get these aspects of humanity explained or, or watching his deadpan delivery of things that shouldn't be funny, but somehow turn out to be funny. Yes. Yeah. It's fantastic. And it works every time he's even doing it in Picard. There was a scene where somebody, um, I'm not, I don't want to try to spoil anything for you, but there's these two cut, these two characters and they say something and Worf has to pretend to be happy. And he, Gives this deadpan line, and they just kind of stare at him, and they were like, "Uh." And he goes, "Oh, I was practicing deceit," and just the the deadpan delivery made it hilarious. I laughed, and I was like, "Yeah," because he was like, "Oh, thank God," because I was practicing deceit, and I was like, yeah. "Man, it's great. It's yeah. great. He is, He's yeah. still great. All these years yeah. later, he's still great." And um, yeah. I can't. I I don't know what that quality is, but the character of Wharf, the actor Michael Dorn great job i i I think
1: you talking about that reminds me of a line from a book i recently read uh i even wrote it down it was so great it was um this character these two characters are joining a military unit and the guy who recruits them they laugh at him because they think he's too serious he takes himself too seriously but as they get to know this guy because he's actually a serious dude he's actually very well trained uh the 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 narrator the, the main character he's like um We realized, or I realized, the character says, that um, he was both the real version and the parody of himself. Like, he was so serious and so real that he was also his parody version. Like, what you would, if you were to make fun of him, this is what you would do to make fun of him. You would make him so serious and so ridiculous. But he was that and, and the real thing at the same time. And that's Worf. Worf is. He is the the realest guy. He is straightforward. He is honorable, and t- to the point of as you just said, I was practicing deceit. Like Worf doesn't do deceit. If he would do deceit, it would be the most honorable deceit you've right. ever seen.
0: <laughs> and it was and it was so obvious. And then when he delivers the line, you're just like you couldn't help but laugh because it was just like we knew. We knew that, and then there's yes. a, another scene in in Picard where he's he's talking to um, Deanna, and the way he's talking to her, and you're just like, "What is wrong with you?" But again, it was <laughs> it was so funny, and uh, I was like, "I don't know, I, I I don't know who wrote these things, but man, did they capture him well." I don't know if if Michael Dorn had input. I would think at this point, when you have characters that have been around for as long as these particular groups of characters have been around. I would assume at some point the writers would go to the actors and be like, hey, what do you think of this? And and, and kind of more of a collaboration than it just being a strictly a, yeah, you know, and so I'm I would like to think that Michael Doran did have a lot of input uh, there. But yeah, um, you know, it's been talked about before about Worf that, you know, because he was essentially raised by humans and he only had at first, a tangential understanding of his people. And that his eventual learning of Klingon culture and society was very much done from the perspective of an outsider looking in. That he kind of distilled down these hard points about Klingon culture and society and made them a part of himself. Even Picard says so in an episode... um, in the next generation, it's the episode where Worf is—he eventually ends up leaving the Enterprise and right. going to serve with Um uh, right. And Picard even says it. he's like, "You—you you took the best aspects of human culture and society, and the best aspects of Klingon culture and society, and you've made them work and made them a part of yourself." Right. And so when we see other Klingons, they always—they're always so different from Worf. They're loud. They're crass. They're—you know—they're just you could say they're more vibrant in, in a certain uh, frame of reference, but they're also more flawed. Worf has become this kind of pinnacle of of honor and the honor code that when you stack him up against other Klingons, he doesn't, he, he doesn't mesh well. And yet he still also doesn't mesh well necessarily with humans, but he's a bit more understandable. And so I think that's also the reason why he he is so compelling because he, he offers that, Um, That kind of perspective of a person who, um, gosh, how do I want to describe this? He's just um, I guess dealing with such absolutes and having to relax himself a little bit makes him very interesting to me. So um, I, I think that's why I've always found him such a compelling character and again one of my favorite characters and I also think it's interesting that my favorite characters tend to be the ones who are the outsiders looking into the society that we are all supposed to um,
1: emulate idolize
0: right and and they call certain aspects of it into question like they're always analyzing certain things to be like why do you do the things that you do and so yeah. that's why odo is a favorite wharf is a favorite um data is a favorite spock was always you know one of those mm-hmm. as well um yeah those were the the outcasts yeah were yeah. were the ones that's that like got me in. yeah yeah Well, final thoughts on Worf, our strategic operations officer.
1: Well, um, I'm glad he's getting integrated with the team. Um, I have to say, though, that Dax was the standout character in this episode. I forgot to mention that. Her absence was absolutely noted. Uh, Once again, what are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) Team space 9. Figured out we're on season four.
0: (laughs) It's true. It's true. Uh, Um, Kira wasn't in this one much either. So. So she had
1: some lines, though. I mean, she uh she goes up to wharf and says, like, are you still working? As you pointed out, like, he doesn't sleep, basically. And mm-hmm. uh, she welcomes Bashir and, o- and Odo back. Uh, I'm sorry, O'Brien, O'Brien back. Uh, but it could have been Dax who welcomed them back, for crying out loud. Like, could why be. didn't Dax have the line? <sighs>
0: yeah, but other just than that. Total, yeah, totally absent. Um, we didn't see Jake. We didn't see Nog. We didn't see Rom a lot of characters we just didn't see in this one now I mean it could be no never mind I was going to say it could be assumed they were off at school but that hasn't officially happened yet so yeah but yeah a lot of characters we didn't see Um, but you're right I would really love for them to kind of you know give us more and again since I have watched the show I know that it's coming so we're getting there Um, but uh, so did you tell me yet who did you side with Bashir or O'Brien
1: I guess I'm going to have to say this, and you're, you're not going to like it, but I would say that the the right answer is what the show would have done. The show could have done it either way. Because we've had episodes where the O'Brien escape plan is the way we go, like the end of season two where the Jemadar first appeared, you know, Cisco and, and Quark and the I have to escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've seen escape episodes. We've seen the doctors pull out miracle rabbits from hats. And that's why this episode was so great. Either one could have been right. Either one could have been wrong. Either one could have been in another scenario. The one that works. Um, so,
0: David, you're just. I'm not ignoring gonna, it. I was uh, going to say you're not going to commit to an answer, huh? You're, you're I mean, gonna...
1: I guess. You know what? I'll just say I'll just say Bashir because you said O'Brien. You know uh-huh. O'Brien. See? I'll just say I'll say Bashir. <laughs> I'll say Bashir because if O'Brien had given Bashir his full help and full assistance, Bashir could have figured it out in time. And save the Jim Hadar and save the day. How about that? That's my answer. Fine.
0: We'll, <laughs> we'll accept it. And it's not the correct answer. It's just your answer. So <laughs> everybody knows the correct answer was mine. So, <laughs> exactly. so all right. Uh, well, that's going to do it for us on this episode. I know it went a little bit longer because we had to, of course, give our you know tribute to This is Worf a great there. episode. It's a... been
1: a great season so far. Yeah, so far, it's... all these episodes. Yeah.
0: yeah. Surprisingly, Again, surprisingly good episode. It's not one that typically gets talked about a lot, but when you really get into it and you start thinking about the elements of the episode, again, the Hippocratic Oath, uh, the history of it, and, and things like that, it does make the episode um, resonate better. In fact, it's one of those times where it's. I've thought about this before, where I wish that they would do like... Um, whenever they do episodes like this, because they don't do them often, but you know, when it comes to the ethics of something, I wish that they would like have like a, some kind of companion guide or something like that that would put up the basis, the foundation of what it was. Right, like we've called it Hippocratic Oaths. Go read it before you watch this episode.
1: Oh, we're, yeah. We're talking <laughs> Do some about. Before. Just, just a
0: little <laughs> bit, you know. I mean, like, Star, well, Star Trek has always been a bit more of a cerebral show anyway. So, just in sure. those moments when they have those particular focuses, we yeah. are talking about um, racism in this episode. Here are some things that we referenced before we started doing the episode. We're talking about. Um, capital punishment in this episode. We're talking about justice in this episode. Here are the things that we referenced when coming up with this episode. And like, just to give us the ability to kind of get in that mindset before we watch their take on right. whatever it is, is they're getting because we may agree, we may not agree, but I think that it helps to have that kind of same foundation so that we can then have the conversation. Because a lot of times we don't, we really don't. And unless you do things like this, you're never going to have it. So, and it's not to say that we're, again, we may not agree with their interpretation of what it is that they present to us or whatever, but I, I like that we can, um, have those kinds of, uh, talks, debates, and so forth. Right. So, um, well, yeah, that will be it for us on this episode. Um, we do have, obviously we'll be back here uh, next week. You can catch us anywhere that you listen to podcasts and you can also watch us on YouTube. I happen to listen to the podcast and other podcasts on Spotify. Um, Don't forget to enter into the contest. This is the last week. So get that done. And then um, we'll be, hopefully, hopefully we'll have a winner. Hopefully enough people entered that we can actually do this. So um, I I have not checked anything yet. So if there are replies or responses or comments or whatever, I have not looked. So um, I'm waiting. So get it done now while you can. All right. Um, Other than that, until next time, take care of yourselves.
1: Thanks, guys.